You're listening to the Pretty Ambitious Podcast with Melissa Murciano, a podcast with successful women sharing their journeys and redefining success along the way. We all have value to bring, from the goal-driven career woman to the impactful stay-at-home mom. Their stories will empower you and give you the push that you need to succeed in the areas that are important to you. So listen along and be inspired as we celebrate and learn from each other. Sure, it's pretty ambitious, but let's do this together. In this episode, you're going to be hearing from Anna Rivas, head of school at Laporte Monastery. She will be discussing all the benefits of monastery learning, tips for parents who are homeschooling, and how working hard and speaking up has allowed her to obtain the positions that she's in. So listen in. So for those who don't know you, I would love it if you would just tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Anna Rivas, and I am, first of all, a mom uh, of two teens, and I'm also a Montessori-trained teacher for children from infancy um, to the age of three, and I'm currently finishing uh, my second Montessori training to work with children from three to six years old. However, I don't teach anymore. I'm now a head of school. And I've done um, a lot of other things in education, training teachers, coaching, working with parents, and um, of course, teaching. We met when we worked on the production team for babystep.tv, not to be confused with baby TV. And we were both working on the production team. Were you, you were hired for the, on the production team or were you for baby step at that point? So I was brought into the company by the CEO of baby step and was hired by the production team. Okay, so yeah, so you were the content director. Right. So without you, we would have no information. (laughs) Um, I was the production coordinator and I think I was mainly brought on because I had small kids. So I had a lot of access to young children and these children would be the ones that would appear in these videos. And they were one minute parenting videos, right? That's right. They were all one minute parenting videos and I think you were kind of the glue, honestly, <laughs> because you just came in with so much information for us to work off of in terms like the families that you um, had contact with. Mm-hmm. And that I found was the most important part of the whole um, production because the relationship had to be there because we were working with parents and children. Right. So yeah, I just, I thought that was a really important part. Yeah. And what was crazy was my garage was turned into the production team's office at one point. That too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we were all working really closely together. Um, And the videos were actually being shot in our house, in my house. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was fun. When I was brought the the idea of that baby step wanted to do these parenting videos that were based on the Montessori approach, but we we didn't say that they were Montessori videos, correct? That's right. They were Montessori inspired, I would say. Can you explain what the Montessori approach is? Um, yes, that's a really big question. Um, so Montessori education was created a long time ago, over 100 years ago, and it was it's a method based on scientific observation. Um, it was created by an Italian physician, the first Italian female physician. Um, Her name is Dr. Maria Montessori. Mm -hmm. And then later it was developed by other people that were invested in Montessori, like her son, Mari Montessori. Um, But she was really just like a genius in her time. She was so advanced for her time and place. 
And um, a lot of her theory is being proven now uh, with just modern science, right? Like a hundred years later, we have all of these imaging that we can do. And so some of the things that she observed and um, developed theories for are really happening at a very scientific level and we can mm -hmm. prove it. So very, very cool that she was able to like extract to these things from just observing um, children and humans. Mm -hmm. But um, so that's about kind of like how it was created, but Montessori is a holistic approach to education. So it's, um, it takes into consideration all the aspects of human development, cognitive, physical, social, even spiritual development. Um, and it's really unique in that, first of all, it, again, it was developed by a scientist, not a psychologist, not a philosopher, but somebody who really used her scientific observation to um, find objective information. Um, so um, there was that already like deliberately rules out preconceived ideas and assumptions that we make about kids, right? Um, about how they learn or how they behave. So it's a very precise method. Um, the other thing that's really unique about Montessori is that it follows the whole development of the human being where like most other developmental theories just talk about childhood. She was studying the whole development of the human being all the way to the age of 24. And then oh, lastly, wow. yeah. And then lastly, um, the most, I think the most important part of her, of the Montessori method is that it details not just what children are going through or what they need, but then actually how do we feed that need? Per, like exactly, like what are the lessons that that child needs? How does the environment need to be set up? What does the adult need to do? So it's very detailed and gives solutions, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, let's say a child's learning how to walk. Um, it's not just telling you, well, at this stage, a child should be walking, but it's saying, um, this is how their body's developing. This is how their mind is developing during this uh, stage. And this is what you can do to support that skill that they're learning. And it's like that for all of them, you know, all of the lessons, all of the curriculum. Um, do they still have milestones? There are still milestones, of course, um, because human development is the same for all humans, right? Um, and so it's a very uh, natural sequence of events that happens. Um, but like in all developmental theories, there's a wide range of ages, right? Like, um, walking can happen as early as, you know, nine months, as late as, you know, 18 months or whatnot. Like maybe that, months, that, might kid, not, yeah. <laughs> that might not be exactly the, the, you know, the, the age range, the range. but, um, yeah, they are certain milestones, but it really is, um, in practice, Montessori is about supporting the child, not necessarily about, um, you know, making sure that they reach certain milestones at certain ages, but it's just supporting every children where they are. So the Montessori method's goal is the development of independence in many different fashions. So it aligns with what's happening in nature all around us. So individuals in the animal world, like, you know, a fowl or a kitten, they're born and then their goal is to become self-sufficient as soon as possible to ensure their own survival. 
And then, you know, of course, to procreate, right? To have babies and pass on their genes. Mm -hmm. So this is essentially it's the same for humans. We're part of the animal world. Um, we just have a longer infancy and childhood period. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more to do in uh, before we can, you know, move out of our parents' houses <laughs> and become independent. Um, and so the Montessori method supports that process of adaptation and mm -hmm. supports that development of independence. And um, it follows the child's natural inclination to develop those skills. Um, but it really begins with looking at the child's character too. Um, so in schools, we are not just teaching children, you know, how to read and how to write, but we are also training them or making an environment and where they're going to learn some characteristics like being responsible, um, being self-motivated, self-sufficient, um, being able to problem solve. Some people call these expected function skills. Um, so that is really the aim of mm -hmm. Montessori in the early years. And, you know, we add to that reading, reading and writing, doing math, right? That's kind of like sprinkled on and it's easily absorbed, but it's not the first goal. The first goal is for the child to grow up and be a well-rounded person that can learn by themselves. Interesting. Okay. So is there a specific age range where they should start? Um, so Montessori is an education for life. Um, so you can start preparing for, um, to raise your child in a Montessori environment when you're pregnant, right? Or when mm -hmm. you're expecting, and you can set up a, a bedroom for a baby to be able to uh, move independently um, and access uh, toys that you've laid out for them when you're, you know, when you're expecting so that it can start from before the child's born. So is there an age that it's too late? You said it can goes up to 24. Is that just where the study was? So that's where the theory goes. It goes from the goes. Okay. birth to 24. Um, there's not a, it's not a curriculum. So Montessori, it's, a lot of people think it's a, it's a curriculum. Like these are lessons yeah. and you give the child, but it's not, it's a, it's a developmental theory. So there are a lot of lessons and practical things that you can do with children. Um, mm -hmm. And if the child doesn't know how to use the Montessori materials, um, then it can take a little bit more effort to teach them with those materials, but it's not that it can't be done. However, um, most um, childhood experts know that the first six years of life are the most important for children. And so mm -hmm. that's ideally where you want to make sure you introduce Montessori or, or different aspects of Montessori, maybe not all of Montessori, but just different aspects of Montessori will be beneficial. Okay. So I guess this leads to the next question. What does your school offer that the traditional school doesn't offer? And I say your school, meaning a Montessori school. A traditional Montessori school or a authentic Montessori school, because the Montessori schools are not the, all the same. They're not created equal. Right. Um, so an authentic Montessori school is going to individualize learning for every child. Um, so that's one really important part of a Montessori school, right? In traditional schools, there's lesson plans for the class every week. 
um, or every month or every day. And in Montessori schools, the lesson plans mm -hmm. are for each child and usually for the whole week. So that's a but how do they do that? That seems like so much work. It, it is a lot of work. However, the Montessori system is set up to support that because children are not constantly guided by an adult. They have a lot of independent skills. They're very responsible. Um, the environment is set up in a very neat and organized way so that they can go off and do things on their own. They can practice their skills while the teacher is working with one child. And so the teacher just rotates, you know, she moves around the classroom, gives individual lessons, or maybe can even group like two or three children that have been working on the same skill. She can group that and then mm -hmm. they can go off and uh, practice on their own. So um, by the children being very independent, the teacher has time to plan and observe the children. Another thing that uh, makes Montessori stand out from other schools is that it's run like a home, like a large family with a lot of siblings. So children don't just go there to learn reading and writing and their shapes and their colors, but they go in to become a community. And so the children mm -hmm. are eating together, they're cleaning the classroom together. Um, they might be you know, just having conversation in the middle of the day and then going back to their work. I kind of compare it to what it's like to work in an office with a lot of other coworkers. You know, you can mm -hmm. go by the water machine and have a conversation and then you can get back to your cubicle and work. So there's like all this freedom to move around and be social, but then you also have your space where you can focus on what you want to work on. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a very, very organic, very natural place for children to grow up. So my next question is why does Montessori um, schools have mixed age ranges, or is that true? It is true. Yes, Montessori schools, authentic Montessori schools. Um, yes, yeah, so let's just touch base. Yeah. Let's touch on that really fast because I think I remember you telling me that anybody can say that they're a Montessori school, correct? Yes. So um, it wasn't that name is not patented or the method is not patented, so anybody can call themselves Montessori. But there are some you know, individuals that will take parts of Montessori and apply it. Um, but the authentic Montessori um, follows Maria Montessori's methods. And okay. they're guided by a international organization um, that she created in, when she was alive and um, was then continued by uh, her son, Maria Montessori. And so, that would be the authentic Montessori method that comes from that organization. So the mixed ages are really important because it allows children from learn from each other, right? So um, if you can think of a family with several children, you know, the younger children always seem to be just a little bit ahead of their time. You know, they're always, um, you know, they like mm -hmm. might walk faster, talk, you know, sooner or whatnot. Um, and that's because they have their older siblings to look yeah. up to. And they learn so much from their siblings. And the older children are then able to um, pass information down to mm -hmm. little ones. They, or they care for the little ones, right? So they, they develop a lot of soft skills because they have their siblings. 
And so in the Montessori classroom, you have that dynamic as well. Uh, the younger children come into the school and learn from the older ones. And then as they get older, they become the leaders and they become the ones that are caring for the little ones and develop those um, soft skills themselves. And so you have this uh, usually three-year cycle where um, children are experiencing a, a family life, mm -hmm. like a large family life in school. Nice. So that must build a lot of confidence for like the older ones. Yes. Yes. You can see that in um, that last year, especially. They're so proud because they're the readers, right? Or they're, yeah. they know all the systems in the classroom. So they're not held back by these little ones because everything is so in individualized, correct? That's right. Yeah. They have their own lesson plan. So um, they can advance at their own pace. Even uh, among all of the older children, right? Some children will pick up some skills faster than others. And so they can keep mm -hmm. advancing um, in one subject area and get into things that maybe like a second grader would be doing, but they're in their kindergarten year. Uh, but that flexibility that Montessori gives uh, allows them to work at their own pace. You still have first grade, second grade, you still have like that? We do. We just combine them again with a mixed age group. So we'll have first, second, and third graders together. Oh, okay. Some Montessori schools will have first through sixth graders together. Oh, wow. And some Montessori school divides that into two subgroups, first through third and fourth, fifth, and sixth. Um, can you explain what is a Montessori room? So a Montessori room is a place designed to meet the needs of children in that age range that are gonna occupy it. So it has all of the lessons, all of the materials that those children need to learn and to explore. Um, it has math and language material, of course, um, but it also has what we call the practical life area. Um, a lot of material for children to clean the classroom, prepare food, wash their dishes, take naps. Um, and then we have another uh, fourth I'm sorry, that just sounds so funny, washing dishes, the kids <laughs> washing <laughs> I think it's yeah. every parent's dream. <laughs> because it's like a little home, right? Yeah. And uh, the children learn to take care of it. It's their space. So that's how they learn responsibility so young is because they actually are expected to do it. They're actually expected to take care of the classroom. Right. Yeah. So at any point, is the room swapped out like halfway through the year or is everything just set up the same throughout the year? Typically, everything stays in its place mm -hmm. and is very organized and cleaned um, frequently uh, year after year. So the children internalize that order and are able to put things back exactly where it goes. Mm -hmm. I mean, they notice things that are out of place and put things back in their place. Um, it's really important to have that order because we don't want children to use their energy and their resources in figuring out the order of the classroom. We want them to come in mm -hmm. and know where everything is so they can learn. So do you feel like monastery children are more well-behaved? I know children are children. I think all children, struggle, right? Um, with just learning how to be with others. They're also growing so much. So they're going through a lot of physical changes. Uh, they, mm -hmm. I mean, they, I don't know, quadruple in size in yeah. a short amount of time. Right? Yeah. 
So that takes a lot of their resources as just like an individual. So they struggle. Um, in our Montessori environments, we work on a curriculum called Grace and Courtesy curriculum. And so we address children's behavior in that way. So just like you would teach the colors, mm -hmm. we will present to the children how to behave in different situations. So for example, a child that needs help can shout for help, right? Or they can be um, asked mm -hmm. or um, modeled how to ask for help politely, right? How do you walk over to someone and if they're busy, how do you wait to get their attention? And then once they give you their attention, how do you actually ask for help? And so these grace and courtesy skills are then applied by the children themselves. And so it's less likely to have meltdowns. It's less likely that those meltdowns will happen in, this, in the class because the children already know how to respond to different social situations. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they're well-behaved or not well-behaved. It's just that they are equipped to handle those situations um, proactively. Right. So going back to the monastery room really fast. Um, so you guys have everything set up the monastery way at school. Mm -hmm. Do a lot of these kids have monastery rooms in their house or their house is set up for this type of living? So again, going back to Montessori, not necessarily being just a curriculum, it's a way of mm -hmm. raising children or a way of um, supporting human development. And so mm -hmm. the Montessori environment is not just the, the classroom or the bedroom, but it's really all of the environments that the children are utilizing. And okay. we encourage parents to set up their, their homes so that their children can function in them independently. Um, and then sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they set up, you know, just one area of the, their homes. Um, but as children get a little bit older and develop more skills, they want to apply them in their homes. Like, you know, if a child mm -hmm. learns how to bake bread, they want to use that skill in their home. Right. And so we, we always encourage parents to expand um, the environments that the children can use at home. So how do you guys measure um, their development? Do you guys have grades like a traditional school? Some Montessori schools give grades. Um, that's not part of the Montessori method or philosophy. Um, instead of uh, spending time and resources on grading children, uh, we instead invest that time and those resources into just guiding their development, supporting their development. Montessorians are really good observers and really good record keepers because we need to know where children are at all times. We mm -hmm. need to know what's next, what they're struggling with. So we watch them and we take notes on what they're doing and try not to use the children's time to show us what they know. But if we can just watch them do it, and then we know that they're doing it, right? We know that they have that skill. Um, and so we typically don't see tests in Montessori until children are a little bit older, like maybe elementary. Um, 
And for our schools, testing begins at about third grade. Um, however, it doesn't mean that there aren't other forms of assessment. Uh, course observation is the major tool of assessment. And so we, we do know where children are, but we live in a society where, you know, other schools might want a report card. And so mm. um, we do have to evaluate them in that way eventually. Mm -hmm. Montessori, we believe that grades are not absolutely necessary for the child's development. It fits the need, right? It fills the need of the society and the school systems, mm -hmm. but it does put a lot of pressure on the child to perform. And so we wait until it's absolutely necessary for them to prove what they know before we give them a test. Um, and so eventually we will give them tests um, when they get a little bit older, typically mm -hmm. uh, in elementary. Um, but before that, our assessments are in the form of observations. And then Montessori teachers take really good notes on those observations so that they always know what the child knows, what's challenging them, um, or what their interests are. Mm -hmm. And so we can continue guiding their development and using our resources and child's resources to, to learn and continue developing. Do you have conversations with the parents saying, I see that the kid is struggling in this area. This is what we're gonna be working on? Yes, um, there's a lot of communication with parents over email, phone calls, face-to-face, -face, um, because children are just changing all the time, right? Um, they're yeah. learning and they're growing all the time. So it's really important for us to have that open communication. And of course, we are trained Montessorians that are working with children. We know exactly uh, what's next and what they've mastered, but parents don't have that training. So it's really important mm -hmm. for us to reassure them that their children are learning. And so we need to explain how they're learning, what skills are picking up, what they're still working on, et cetera. In most Montessori schools that I've encountered, we do have progress reports and we do have parent-teacher conferences. Mm -hmm. um, we just don't grade them with, you know, A, B, C, D um, mm -hmm. or numbers. We are essentially just communicating their progress. The kids are not just cleaning and cooking. <laughs> do they have a time for <laughs> pretend play? Um, so... We don't do pretend play in Montessori. And I know that is a hot topic usually <laughs> because right. all, like, uh, all other schools do, right? <laughs> have pretend play. Yeah. So we have learned, um, and this goes back to when Marie Montessori was first uh, working with children. Um, mm -hmm. We see that children, when given the choice of doing something real and purposeful, they will always choose that. So instead of giving them a toy kitchen, we give them a kitchen to work in. Uh, you know, we modify it so that it's safe for them to use it. But we give them the actual activity that will produce actual food that they can then share and enjoy. And so that's why we don't have pretend areas in our classrooms because we have those activities in real life in our schools. So they don't have a pretend kitchen. They actually have a real kitchen, a real working stove. That's right. Maybe not a stove, uh, depending on the age, oh, right? Okay. <laughs> As they get a little bit older, like in elementary, they might have a stove. Uh, but in the early years in preschool, 
they have a small refrigerator in the classroom. They might have like a crock pot, um, just other tools that are used to under supervision that are, right. uh, yeah, that allow them to just actually make the food. <laughs> that makes sense. And I remember hearing about um, when you would get books, they should be real realistic animals rather than like a purple donkey. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so that is because children are very literal. They, everything that they see, they think it's real. So at up to a certain age, up to about six years old, um, we call that the first plane of development. And so all of the information that we give them through imagery, um, just anything that they encounter, we want it, we want it to be factual so that they can use that knowledge to build from. Um, eventually, when they get a little bit older, like in the elementary years, they start using their imagination and they can tell what is real and what is not real. And so mm -hmm. they can use all of the knowledge that they already have to be creative, to create new knowledge um, and use fantasy. So there are some, you know, um, books that are classics, right? That we can read to children like Corduroy, for example, that, you know, the animated little bear. We might read that to children. It's a beautiful piece of literature, um, but we try to bring in real life representations, accurate rep representations of what's happening and what is in the world in the early years up to age six. I actually remember one time where you were in my house and we were in my boy's room. You were so good. What you weren't, you didn't just come into my house and said like, okay, all of this is like a hot mess, Melissa. Like you need to clean this all up. <laughs> I think you asked me like, do, do you want my opinion? Cause I probably was saying they don't play with any of this stuff. I do remember you saying it's, it can be really overwhelming for a child if he has 300 cars to play with. <laughs> can you speak about that a little bit? Yes. Um, that's one of my favorite topics to talk about because <laughs> I, of course, had kids of my own, have kids of my own. So yeah, we always got just an abundance of toys poured in from all parts of the family. And we really had to um, get organized because it is something that I've observed over the years, many times over. And it's also part of the Montessori method. Maria Montessori said it herself too that, um, you know, children should just have what they need. Um, and everything else that is excess is just taking up space, right in their minds in their physical space. Um, and then it, if you just think about like yourself, like when your desk is cluttered, you know, how stressful could it can it be to work, right, where um, mm -hmm. when your desk is nice and neat, and you have just what you need, then you can focus a lot better. So it's the same for children. And for children, play and learning is the same thing, right? Giving them like an academic lesson or, you know, having them play with Legos is the same. It's just an activity for them. So they use the same amount of concentration. They can, they need the same um, focus and order around them to be able to enjoy that activity. And mm -hmm. so that's why... We try to rotate the things that are on our like toy shelves at home. Um, I think even also you were saying about um, some of the things that my boys had weren't even age appropriate anymore. 
Oh, right. That's a common practice that we have as parents, right? Like, yeah, it's hard to let go. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, that kept them entertained for so long. Maybe they'll go back to it. But nope, they never do. What they do when they're bored with toys is they get creative with them and can become destructive, right? Or like, they just, you know, eventually push it out themselves right or they learn to like hoard everything (laughs) my daughter was like this (laughs) keep everything um but yeah it's our jobs as parents to help them sort through that and just just bring out what really interests them and then you'll see that they'll focus longer they'll find more joy in their activities and they'll show you what they really like so should we never buy toys for them? I don't see it ending because I get rid of toys <laughs> and then more come in because they want this new car. No, I think children need toys. I think toys are lovely. I think um, they're just, okay. there's a lot more to children than playing with toys, right? They have a lot more interest that you might not, not notice because we just expect them to just want to play with toys. But I mean, I remember when my son was in preschool, uh, maybe I was five years old and Mm -hmm. I really needed to play my bills. I needed to get on the computer and pay my bills. And he was just not getting occupied with his toys. And so I invited him to join me to pay my bills. (laughs) And I said, I need your help. We need to go get the mail. Can you open this envelope for me? And, you know, this is, where I'm going to pay the bills on the computer. And let's read that number. Of course, I was double checking everything, but, you know, asking him to read what number was on that line or like, what's the name of that bill? Oh, that's the water bill. Right. And explaining to him Mm -hmm. where that money comes from. Why is it going to the, you know, electric company or whatnot. And so if children are allowed to, participate in adult life a little bit more, even at like a very superficial level, right? They're, they can't actually pay your bills. <laughs> right. <laughs> they can't manage your account. But if you just invite them into your world, you'll see how interested they are in so many other things yeah. than just their toys. Yeah, it is true. Yeah. Can you talk about um, the infant stage? I heard that there are no baby gates, no high chairs, crib on the floor. Please enlighten us with this information. (laughs) Yes, it is true that a lot of Montessori homes and even in our um, Montessori baby rooms, we call them nidos, you won't find um, cribs unless the Department of Social Services requires them, which is true in some places. Oh, yeah. Uh, Every state has their own rules um, and even by just uh, areas within a state. There are different rules that we have to abide by in schools. But most Montessori spaces won't have cribs. Um, It's not absolutely necessary to have a floor bed, but it does serve a really important purpose. Um, It teaches the the baby how to crawl in and out of a very small step, which is the size of the mattress, right? Um, It gives them a lot of freedom to move around when they wake up. So, of course, there's other ways to keep them safe, like you might have a baby monitor in there, Mm -hmm. or you might also track the baby's schedule to make sure that you're available when they're awake. Um, You might also remove anything that could be 
dangerous for a child to um, put in their mouths. Um, so you baby proof the entire room. And, and then when the baby uh, wakes up, they can kind of roll out or like wiggle out of their bed and find something to entertain themselves with. As opposed to what we are doing traditionally is waiting for the child to cry to be taken out of the crib, mm -hmm. right? A lot of the times we do that, the crib is safe. So those bars all around it contain the child. And then the child learns that they have to cry to get your attention as opposed to entertaining themselves with something around them. Um, so again, it's not that you can't have a crib, but um, it helps even the adult to be more attentive, right? So you're going over there when the child's waking up, you're not rushing to pick them up because they can entertain themselves. I would think it would be dangerous to have a newborn on a mattress on the floor in case he slides off of it without any bars to protect him. Well, we wouldn't put them on a floor bed when they're um, really, really young. Okay. We start by having them um, on a, like a little bassinet until about the age of three months. And then we move them over to a floor bed, but they first sleep on a little bassinet. So they are contained and they can't roll out. Um, but eventually, yeah, we do want to move them. And there's uh, things that you can do, like you can have a, a carpet mm -hmm. all around the floor bed so that when they roll over and they roll out, they're going on the carpet and not like on hardwood floor or something like that. Okay. So going to the baby gates, it, again, um, we want children to access all parts of the house because the house is prepared for them, right? But if there's an area of the house that is not prepared for them, it should be gated for safety, right? Like so safety. kitchen? Yeah, the kitchen could be somewhere that you can either prepare some space for them to use, but maybe the whole kitchen is, they don't have access to the whole kitchen. Uh, but you'll be watching your baby, right? So if they're crawling over to the kitchen and they want to open a cabinet, you know, the lower cabinets, maybe don't put the knives there, <laughs> right? Don't put a blender in there. Yeah, yeah. Right, but um, allowing them to explore will not only be really enriching for them, for their experience, um, but it also eliminates power struggles, which we encounter a lot with as children get a little bit older and they become toddlers, right? That one thing that you don't want them to do, that's what they focus on. And then you get into this power struggle with a, a young child where when they've had the freedom to explore and there's explanations that go along with limits um, and lots of lots of positive things to focus their energy on, you may encounter less power struggles. How do you guys handle children who have special needs? And do you guys take children into your schools who have special needs? Yes, um, we do not discriminate as um, any, you know, all schools should not discriminate against um, children with special needs. Um, there are ways that we can accommodate uh, for them. We can modify our environment or our practices to meet their needs. Of course, every school is different, right? And some, mm -hmm. and every child is different. And so some children have needs that um, the school can't support, um, they right? Need a different setting. However, we try our best to accommodate and then work with the family 
to get their support as well. Um, and there have been situations where a child has needed one-on-one -on -one attention and uh, we might not be able to provide that, but a parent can provide an aid that is, you know, has their background checked and is trained for that. And the aid can come in and um, keep that child safe and make sure that all the other students um, are safe from some right. of the behaviors that, you know, could be happening in the classroom. But we try our best. Um, and in some situations it works and, and some they need an environment that meets their need and it might not be in our space. Okay, so how does someone find an authentic Montessori school? I think that the uh, easiest, fastest way to get to quality Montessori schools is to go to the International Montessori Association um, mm -hmm. that lists them for you. But there are a lot of really good Montessori schools out there that might not be associated with the International Montessori Association. Um, but that is like, you know, a very quick and easy way to find a good school. Uh, but uh, really, parents should approach the school and observe. Um, right now, obviously, with the pandemic, you can't access a lot of things in person. But during non-pandemic, non-COVID times, um, Montessori schools should feel welcoming. And when you sit and observe in a classroom, um, you should you should see that joy in children in their activities, right? Um, that's a really, really important observation to make as a parent is not necessarily that they're, you know, laughing and screaming and uh, being entertained all the time, but they're actually peacefully coexisting together in a space. That is the marker for a good Montessori school. Mm, okay. So your training is different than a teacher teaching at the Board of Education, correct? It is. Yes, the Montessori teachers have specific Montessori training um, that uh, is not only like the pedagogy and the philosophy, but it's also hands-on. So hours and hours and hours, I mean, over a hundred hours of observation and practice teaching. Um, so it's, it takes a lot of effort to become a Montessori trained uh, person, but there is a lot of information out there for parents and a lot of books that have been written about Montessori and I can, I can list them. Um, but one that comes to mind for those young parents of young children um, is Understanding the Human Being. That's mm -hmm. one uh, Montessori book that helps parents of very, very young children. Um, there's a website called aidtolife.org. And that also has lots of good information. But there are many Montessorians that have written books um, for parents. How to Raise an Amazing Child the Montessori Way is one of them. Um, the Montessori Toddler, The Montessori Baby, mm -hmm. Montessori from the Start, Montessori Madness. Those are just a few really good books that uh, can help get parents get started. That's good. So, okay, so I know a lot of people are home with the kids, homeschooling. It's been very challenging. Just like today, I was going back and forth with my seven-year-old and he just wants to constantly get up from his chair and he tells me, mom, it's just too much screen time, <laughs> which is funny because I'm like, when you're watching Netflix and Hulu, you're not saying this. <laughs> um, so 
I don't know if you have some tips to give parents on working with children at home, especially since they're not trained and they're not teachers. Yes. So I would say that the most important part of anything is balance. And obviously with online education, children are spending a lot of time on screens and it might be difficult to omit some of that screen time, right? Like they have to be in class, Yeah. but maybe adding some activities that are not on screens might be helpful. Um, so for example, just making sure that you have some time out in nature scheduled into the day, every day, right? And maybe some one-on-one, you know, uh, um, high quality connection with other people is really important. Even if it's just the parents, that's okay too. Of course, we're in a pandemic, we can't gather, Right. but it's really important to balance it because looking at a screen is not the same kind of learning that the child's brain needs and their development needs. So I would say to add things again, being in nature is really important, going on nature walks, um, playing sports, um, you know, if you have plants that you can grow in your backyard, going and tending for those, walking an animal, you know, walking your pet, feeding a pet, um, and then just kind of scheduling one-on-one time where, you know, you don't have to necessarily just sit in front of each other and have a conversation, but you can do something together, like folding laundry together. That's um, an activity that children uh, can use to learn a new skill, spend time with their parent, like that you can have a conversation while you're doing laundry. Um, and you're, the children are also using their bodies in a purposeful way, which is very different than going to the playground and running around. Mm-hmm. It's like um, going to a dance class where an instructor is modeling for you and you're really focused on your movements it takes a lot of mental and um, physical energy from anybody to do that and so it brings a lot of balance to the child's day yeah that's so true because I when this pandemic first hit and everyone turned from being in regular school to home um, throughout the day I would take them not throughout the day, but like once a day, I would take them around the corner with their bikes and they just loved it. And it's only around the corner. It's not like, we're not even going far. They didn't visit anybody, but just like having them, you know, use their bikes and just be outside. Like you said, in nature, it was really helpful. So I need to do that. Yeah. Yes. Um, Sometimes I have to schedule it, like put it on my phone calendar because with my own children, I miss it sometimes. I mean, they're a little bit older now, but they still need to go outside and get some sunlight. (laughs) Um, so yeah, sometimes as a parent, I have to like put it in my calendar because it's not something that I'm constantly thinking about. But the other thing I want to say about that is that children will eventually learn the things that they've missed on during this time. You know, I think a lot of parents are worried about children falling behind and it's, it's a real, you know, it's true that the class is going to go on, um, without them if they're not in class. Uh, But a lot of these things can only, like a lot of these academic skills can only be learned and really retained for the long-term when children are happy and comfortable. So if children are stressed, it doesn't matter if they're in class, they're not gonna 
pay the attention in the same way, right? Mm -hmm. So I encourage parents, as difficult as it might be to um, not worry about academic learning, it really is to the child's benefit to lay off a little bit because they will eventually learn, right? They will be able to pick up some of those skills that they skipped uh, later in life. It's going to come back. Yeah, I know that's a big concern for a lot of parents. Um, so did you always want to be head of school? Was that always something that you were aiming for? Um, I mean, I I always wanted to try running a school like that's something that was kind of on my bucket list. Like I want to be, I want to try um, uh, leading a group of teachers <laughs> and yeah. um, building a nice little school community. I didn't necessarily have my eyes on like being ahead of school. I thought maybe like, oh, one day I'll open my own Montessori school, yeah. but um, it just happened it just happened to me and um, I enjoy it. I um, feel really valued and appreciated by the community that I lead and um, the people that I work with. Um, but it's uh, so far been a pleasant experience. So I hope to be here for a long time. You've been with Laporte for many years, right? How many years? I've been with Laporte since my son was one and he's 14 now. So 13 years on and off. Um, I, I started as a teacher yeah. and then um, left to open my own little preschool, which actually didn't take off because I, that's when I connected with Baby Step and then my life just turned into a different direction, which I don't regret one bit. I got, there's just so many great experiences from that. Um, yeah, we were just waiting for a license to operate. Oh, that's right. Uh -huh. And then Baby Step, Baby Step came along and... Um, uh, we started working on this project together and I really felt like I needed to take advantage of that opportunity because it was just so different and unexpected. And I knew that I could return yeah. to running a school later. So, um, yeah, but then after baby step, I did a bunch of other things that had, you know, didn't necessarily have anything to do with, uh, teaching children. I was working more with adults, uh, doing coaching and things like that. And I got to travel a lot and take my children along. Um, so here, here I am now finally settled into a school, but I'm, I'm really yeah. fulfilled. What I always admired about you was, um, just how hardworking you were. And when your kids were around, you were extremely present with them. You were really patient. And I just, when I look back on that time, I just think, I don't know how you did it because you were homeschooling them. They were coming sometimes to the office and um, you were just always really patient with them. So can you give any tips um, to parents who are working from home as well as homeschooling and just trying to find that balance? Because I know it can be extremely difficult. Yes, I can definitely speak to that. <laughs> it's, it, I've been... I've homeschooled my kids for five years, four years straight um, from uh, second and fourth grade to sixth and uh, ninth grade. And then uh, they started homeschooling again this year because uh, the school shut down. So instead of doing online learning, I decided let's just homeschool again. Um, and 
it has been tough. It has not been easy at all. I don't want to, you know, anyone to think that I had it any easier than anybody else because of my Montessori training. Absolutely not. I think parenting is really challenging and it takes so much out of you. I was really fortunate that I had a good support system. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents, my sister, um, uh, my husband, everyone just always supported uh, the way that we wanted to parent and took on some of the roles that I had to put aside to work on the projects that I was working on. Um, so that was a huge factor in my, uh, you know, my children's homeschool experience. Uh, my sister's a biologist, so she was able to uh, kind of take care of that curriculum a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had a very loose curriculum. We did unschooling, uh, not necessarily homeschooling, but unschooling. And so we really followed the interests of the children. And we also tried to incorporate a lot of real life experiences mm-hmm. um, for them. So instead of, you know, getting a textbook on biology, we had a biologist in our family. So, you know, she would come in and she would talk to them about her experience, she would take them on nature walks and, you know, with all of her knowledge, um, those conversations were so much more rich than I could ever you know, yeah. have for them. Um, my mom is a gerontologist, so she um, brought them along to a lot of the activities that she did for her elderly community that she works with. And so they had a lot of experience with that too. My dad's a diving instructor. So it was just we were just really fortunate to have a lot of talented people around them. Um, and then again, with Baby Step, you even saw how they came along yeah. and um, were helping with the project a little bit, right? Yeah. You know, they're little. So, but they were like holding the camera yeah. and they were in the spreadsheets marking what videos we already filmed. Um, so that was super, super fun. And I think th- that, not I think, I know that was the aim of homeschooling for us. Mm-hmm. It was giving them a rich experience to build their character, um, giving them experiences that they can then reflect on when they got older and were learning subjects um, from a textbook, right? So now when they open up a biology textbook, they know what they're reading. They understand, have some understanding, they have a knowledge base. They've experienced growing their own corn. They've experienced um, having chickens and seeing them laying eggs and, yeah, you know, things like that. So it's not just textbook information. It's actually things that they've experienced and they learned how to learn through those years, right? They learned how to gather information when it's not handed to them, which it is a lot of times in school in traditional school, right? The teacher gives you the information, yeah. you memorize it and you, you know, you manipulate the information and then you prove to the teacher that you know it. Um, In their experience, they didn't have to follow a teacher all the time. They were just inspired by the teachers around them, um, our family members and such. And so um, now that they're a little bit older, they can pick up a textbook and just do it on their own because they remember other people modeling that for them. Back to that balance. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I think balance is super important in every aspect. I mean, from nutrition, like what do you put in your body? Like, you know, exercise and all of that. I think it's really important to find a balance. And so it was the same for me as a person. 
I'm a mom, but I'm also professional. And I had all of that support from all of, you know, those amazing people that were part of the homeschooling experience for my children. Um, and so that was a big factor for me to be able to balance my career and parenting and homeschooling. Um, but I also made it a point to involve the children in my life and what I was yeah. doing. Again, like even whether it was paying bills or doing laundry, it was quality time over quantity for us. Um, I traveled a lot in their childhood, but I also was able to bring them with me. Um, I was able to make arrangements with the people that I worked with so that they were expecting my children to come because I just felt really strongly that this is something that is valuable for them. So um, for a baby step, we um, traveled to China. My daughter and I traveled to China to do a presentation for them. And um, it was wonderful. I, I, my mom also came because my mom helped to care for her when I was busy. Um, But it was just, I always try to find ways for them to also experience real life things um, in my activities in, in, you know, um, at the same time when I'm busy developing my career and I've been able to do that so far, not always, but a lot of the times and it's worth the effort. It's a lot more work, but it's worth the effort now that they're older. I'm definitely reaping the benefits of that because they are teens and they are so interesting and pleasant to be around. Like I look forward to hanging out with my teenagers, right? When some parents are like running, when are you moving out? (laughs) Like running away. I, I really, really do enjoy them. And it wasn't a coincidence. It was deliberate, right? We, made an effort to help them develop themselves. Um, It wasn't just me kind of like raising them, but it was us supporting the way that they were developing. And so they became just like really interesting and fun people. Yeah. And just seeing um, just like the things that you do with your kids. Um, I know you don't post everything, but um, I've seen many trips that you guys taken together and you guys always have them out in nature and they just seem always involved. Yeah. Yeah. I'm tired. <laughs> I am tired. Yeah. Back to what you were saying about how it's really tiring. Just, just the example of when I'm folding laundry and Elon wants to help, he always wants to help, but it's just so much more work yeah. <laughs> because I'm like, he's not folding it. Right. I got to fold it again. The socks are all mismatched, you know, like, I mean, he can match it, but then, it's like the way I want it done, you know, fold it back over. So it definitely is more work, but I I do know that the time that I do let him, he's, he's happy. He's like involved. Yeah. He, he loves helping out. Yeah. So it's definitely, um, there's definitely a period where it's more uh, time consuming to have them be with right. you and work with you, but they do learn the skills. And I can tell you from my own experience and, and other people that I know that practice you know, parenting the same way, um, eventually they get really good at those things. And, um, yeah. you know, as a 14 year old at home, I know that I can leave my son to do his laundry. He can clean the pool. He can take care of, uh, you know, our new Husky puppy that we just got. Um, he can do so much and I can trust him 
to do so much. Yeah. Um, the same for my daughter. My daughter's a little bit older now, but she's almost 17. But she, uh, as a 10 year old, could do laundry on her own. Can she could cook simple meals because we invested so wow. much time. And so I feel like they, um, they not only enjoy the time that we spent with them when they're like five and six and seven, but they're also actually really learning life skills that they're going to take away for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So it pays off. So in the beginning, it's a lot more work, but then in the end it pays off. Yeah, absolutely. I know you have a daughter. What are some of the values that you want her to see in you? Um, and if you have any advice for a young woman, um, I think not, not just for my daughter, um, but being, um, okay with mistakes is one of the most important uh, things that I, uh, strive to pass on to my kids. Uh, I try to uh, model for my children, um, to be okay with mistakes and to be okay with the process, mm-hmm. um, of life, just anywhere, anytime. And, you know, mistakes are important. They, that's when you learn, if you're doing something perfectly, you're not learning. Right. right? Um, and so it's, it's kind of like a, a lucky experience when you make a mistake, because that is where life is saying here, here's some knowledge that you can take right. forward. Um, so that's one of the most important things that I, I want to pass on is to not be afraid, uh, not to be afraid of making mistakes. Um, I also, I, uh, through the years, I've tried to um, help my children understand what their definition of success is. And so that's something that I think every person should do because success is not making the money, right? It's not having the title. Success is whatever makes you feel happy and, and you know, makes you feel like you're enjoying your life. And that's something else that I've tried to pass on to, to both of my children um, it's kind of like a, you have to let go of expectations, mm-hmm. right? You have to let let go of what society is expecting from you and just do you. Yeah. So, um, I know, I think it's a good time to be a woman right now. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah. We are. No, I, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, once you, let go of all that baggage that we can sometimes grow up with as, as women. I mean, just people in general, but obviously as women, we have a different experience. Um, when you let go of that baggage, it opens you up to finding your potential of being comfortable in your skin of finding the true meaning of success for yourself. And then when you put that oxygen mask on yourself, you can empower someone else to do it next. And I think that is so important for society is we know when you're you're reflecting and you're learning and you're growing and you're happy you will make society better as a woman that is what we do we're nurturers and again not just women right because there are um you know all youth they all need to be and grow up to be empathetic right they all need to learn what the true meaning of success is for them um especially these times that, gen, you know, being open to um, the meaning of gender is so important. Mm-hmm. 
I love that. I love what you said about uh, making mistakes because that's actually why I wanted to do this podcast. I wanted to do something that I knew that was going to be so out of my comfort zone. I just know that if I keep doing this over and over, I'm going to get better at it. I also want to show that to my kids. I want to show them that, you know, you're not going to be good in the beginning and it's okay. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I was surprised when I got the call uh, from you to do this. I was like, oh my goodness, it's not something that I expected from her. But no, um, I'm really happy that you're doing it because it's super fun. And um, yeah, I think push those boundaries, yeah. you know, like make mistakes, even if, even if we don't get really good at that one thing, it doesn't matter. We experienced right. it. It was. That's oh, true. Yeah. If someone wants to find more information on you, where can they find you? Okay. So I, I am um, a, a rare person that does not have a um, public or big uh, presence in the social media world. It just makes me a little bit nervous. I didn't grow up in that time. I'm sure you didn't either. Yeah. Right. Like you have to, you have to embrace the new social media stuff going on. Mm -hmm. um, I, I haven't quite, um, but if you want to look for my school, the school that I run, um, it's not my school, but it's the school that I run. Um, you can go to laporte.com, L-E-P-O-R-T.com and look for us there. We are uh, a set of um, several schools in Southern California and you know, I love these schools. They're amazing. My children came here. Um, I grew up as an adult here. Um, so it's a great place to be in Southern California. Um, other than that, I keep my social media press, uh, presence pretty light and private. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Get in contact with Melissa if you want to talk right. to me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so do you do any one-on-one -on -one that stuff? with children? I do. I, I still, oh, not with children, oh, with, parents? Um, with parents and um, school leaders. Um, and it's all by word of mouth, just people that I know, um, or, you know, somebody finds me through someone else. Uh, they need a little help with this or that. And so my connections um, get me opportunities. So you do I'm like coaching calls? I do, I coach parents and I coach um, teachers and I coach school leaders. Oh, nice. um, but more, most of my work is just um, collaborating with my former and you know, current colleagues. So it's not something that I do for a living anymore, um, but I still really enjoy it. So I'm always looking to experience those opportunities, um, but I don't advertise it anymore because it's just not what I'm focused on. Yeah. I'm foc now I have an almost college uh, student that I need to focus on in this school. So oh my goodness, that's so crazy. I'm satisfied. Anyways, Anna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for doing this. I know everybody is going to get so much information from this episode. So thank you. No, thank you for having me. I'm so happy that we got to connect again. Uh, it was so great to spend time with you. Yeah, and just kind of relive all those baby step things, <laughs> right? So much fun. So thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved today's show, be sure to screenshot it and share it on your social. Don't forget to tag at Pretty Ambitious Podcast on Instagram. We would love to hear from you.